This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and for those of you who know me, you'll know that theater is a huge source of happiness and bliss in my life. And I'm so delighted to tell you about a very special guest that we have on the show today. We are devoting the whole hour to one of musical theater's greatest national treasures in the American theater and throughout the world. And that is six-time Tony Award-winning Broadway producer and one of the musical theater's greatest, Stuart Lane, also known affectionately as Mr. Broadway. Singing for us later on in the show today is singer, actor, and dancer Lily Liebrach, who is going into her fourth year at the prestigious music theater program at Sheridan College, home of Come From Away. All of that and more coming up soon, but first, let me tell you a little bit more about Stuart Lane. As mentioned, Stuart Lane is a six-time Tony Award-winning producer for Jay Johnson, the two and only Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Will Rogers Follies, La Cage aux Folles, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, and Warhorse, as well as a nine-time nominee, including Fiddler on the Roof, Revival, starring Alfred Molina, Gypsy, The Revival, starring Bernadette Peters, this 1776, a revival starring Pat Hingle and Brent Spiner, The Goodbye Girl, starring Martin Short and Bernadette Peters, and Woman of the Year, starring Lauren Bacall. Lane is also the recipient of four Drama Desk Awards, a Drama Critics Circle Award, an Outer Circle Critics Award, and a Drama Lounge Award. Other Broadway producing credits include Listen to this list. I have to list it because he's done it all and I want to mention them. Cyrano de Bergerac, starring Kevin Klein, Jennifer Garner, and Daniel Sujata, Legally Blonde the Musical, Minnelli on Minnelli, starring Liza Minnelli, Wait Until Dark, starring Quentin Tarantino and Marissa Tomei, Can Can, starring Zizi Jean-Mer, Frankenstein, starring Diane Wiest, Teaneck Tansy starring Deborah Harry and Andy Kaufman. A Change in the Air, The Grand Tour starring Joel Gray. West Side Story oh, starring Debbie Allen and many more. In London, Lane produced Top Hat, which won him an Olivier Award, Thoroughly Modern Millie Olivier nomination, Ragtime Olivier nomination, and Lobby Hero. In Dublin, he produced the world premiere of JFK, a musical drama. Expanding into film, Lane has produced over 25 stage-to-screen productions, as well as movies such as Brooklyn Rules, starring Alec Baldwin and Freddie Prince Jr., Romeo and Juliet, starring Orlando Bloom and Condola Rashad, and documentary show business, The Road to Broadway. Lane has also produced the Broadway production of Company, starring Raul Esperanza and Cyrano de Bergerac, starring Kevin Klein for great performances on PBS. He is also the CEO and co-founder of the wonderful Broadway HD, which is the premier theater streaming platform that brings full-scale Broadway productions right into the privacy of your own home. And as if that were not enough, and I have them all here on my desk, for, for several lifetimes, Lane is also the author of three books, Let's Put On a Show, which is fabulous, by the way, really for anyone from the amateur to the professional, Jews on Broadway, which went into two editions, and Black Broadway. He also wrote the plays In the Wings, published by Hal Leonard, and If It Was Easy, published by Performing Books, which was nominated for Best New Play by the American Theatre Critics Association. He conceived and wrote the John Denver musical Back Home Again, for which he received the John Denver Spirit Award. 
Lane has also directed numerous productions all across North America. He is the co-owner and operator of the Palace Theater in New York City and a partner in the Tribeca Restaurant with Robert De Niro. Lane also sits on a bevy of impressive theatrical boards, is the proud recipient of many prestigious awards and honors. And giving back to the theater community, uh, Lane has created scholarship funds at Columbia Business Graduate School and Boston University College of Fine Arts. And he's been a major supporter of many performing arts schools. Five Towns College honored Lane by naming their business school Stuart F. Lane School of Business for his contributions to the world of entertainment. He also lives in New York City with his wife, Bonnie, and five children. Stuart Lane, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Well, you, you covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> we can go home now. <laughs> Stuart, in preparing for this interview, I was really blown away by how prolific you are. First of all, as a writer of the theater, not to mention your many, many Tony Awards, Drama Critics Circle Awards, and really your invention of the art form with your amazing Broadway HD platform, which has allowed a lot of us to see Broadway musicals and shows during this pandemic. There's so much here, it's hard to know where to begin. So as Maria from The Sound of Music says, let's start at the very beginning. Your marriage to the theater began when you were invited to see your first Broadway show when you were only 11 years old and you drove into New York City from Long Island and you saw Little Me starring Sid Caesar with music by Cy Coleman, lyrics by Carolyn Lee and book by Neil Simon. By the way, this is all in one of uh, the wonderful books written by Stuart Lane. And you went backstage and there was a refrigerator and a bed and a TV and a hot plate. And you thought at the time, this is a home away from home. I never have to leave. And so this began your long and successful marriage in the theater. And by the way, everyone, this is all, as I just mentioned, in Stuart Lane's book called Let's Put On a Show. I couldn't get over the people you've worked with and how you've really been immersed in the world of theater since the age of 11. So can you take us back to what happened after that pivotal night in the theater at age 11, what you felt and how this really became a game changer for you? Well, misguided as it may have been, it gave me a real focus in life. Uh, certainly my parents, I think, wept till the day they died that I was in the theater. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, how is he going to make a living? But uh, you know, with that uh, behind me, I was inspired that that storytelling in real time with real actors on stage are better than television, better than the movies, and very different. So I really enjoyed, and having access, I grew up in the suburbs here in New York, so having access to uh, Broadway, as expensive as it was, uh, it was really a big plus. Uh, so all through junior high and then middle school, uh, you know, I was uh, joining the drama club and the speech classes and uh, got, was in the school plays. Uh, it was interesting that my, uh, my, my high school did not do musicals. They only did plays. So I specialized in whether it was The Crucible by Arthur Miller or Calvin and Hearts, The Man Who Came to Dinner or the comedies that involved a lot of people. I loved working with other actors and other writers and directors, as the case was. So that kind of inspired me to go on to Boston University, where I got a BFA in theater and acting, uh, which was, because uh, you know, I, I wanted a conservatory. I wanted a real intensive, as you said, immersive way of being in the theater, because I wanted to learn the craft of that theater, not just to shoot for, say, stardom, which wouldn't be bad, but uh, to actually have a craft and, and know what I'm doing. I, I wasn't able to achieve the holy grail, which back then was regional theater. So going out to Minneapolis, for the Guthrie or the uh, or the Trinity Theater in, in Providence, so that was the idea: train yourself, work you work your craft, then come to the big city to do it. I ended up being dropped into the deep end right away and came to New York. So you know, I, I did a showcase, which is doing, which is performing for nothing. Basically, you just invite agents and uh, casting directors to come see you. So I started with that. Uh, I had to get a job as a waiter for a while. In fact, I had to have connections for that because I hadn't been a waiter before. So they actually, the director of my showcase had to give me a good word. And for the first three weeks, I worked just on tips, just to get the training to be a waiter. I want to, I want to go back just a little bit to grade nine when you played in Harvey and you were standing on a <laughs> stage in the ninth grade. And I want you just to take us back there, like actually put yourself back there and tell us what that felt like, because that was the first time you were really on stage in front of an audience. What was that like? Well, I was playing the role of the taxi driver, which is the character that comes in 
at the very, very end of the play. And I was the only eighth grader in the show, right? Actually, it was a you know, ninth grade production. So you know, the, 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 the audience has been sitting there, whatever, two and a half hours. Finally, I come on and the whole auditorium goes up in applause. The five minutes of applause. Now, I'm not sure whether it was for me, which uh, might have been, but I think it was because they knew the end of the show was coming. <laughs> and I was hooked. Now, that was good. You were hooked. That was the moment. And I also want to just go back to when you were a teenager, a little bit older. You spent a lot of time in the Catskills and you did some studying in the Catskills over the summers. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, certainly when, uh, when I graduated high school, uh, the first summer I was able to get a job at the Bucks County Playhouse. Uh, and it was just, again, as an intern, uh, getting a sense of what the world of theater was like. There was no handbook back then. The closest thing we had was a book by William Goldman called The Season which kind of explained the Broadway environment and the denizens that lived there. But that was it. My parents had no idea, and uh, my teachers had no idea. But the, uh, the, the Catskill training really happened that freshman year of college. I went up to the Monticello Tent Arena. Now, this is a non-equity, non-union, but it gave me a chance to not only explore my capabilities, but introduced me to part of the theater I had not known before. I, we did a show called Anything Goes, written by Cole Porter. So I was introduced to those songs. We did uh, Girl Crazy, uh, songs written by George and Ira Gershwin. And that taught me that. Uh, we did a re musical review. I'd never seen a review before. So I understood what a review was. You know, just you know, connected songs without a storyline. Uh, so it was kind of an exciting experience that summer. Then the following summer, I was able to get a job at the Forestburg Theater Festival in Monticello. Now, this was an equity. See, I'm, I'm stepping up now. This was an equity uh, show, equity theater. Yes. And I got to do Cyrano there, uh, where I got to die at the very beginning of the show. And uh, but, but again, I was introduced to Gilbert and Sullivan, but we did uh, HMS Pinafore. And I was introduced to other other shows that I had not known about or have heard. So this was really exciting as it expanded my knowledge uh, and furthered my enthusiasm for the theater's form of entertainment. That's so amazing. I, I love the book. I just want to go back to let's put on a show for a minute because there really is something in it for everyone. It, it, it's great for the amateur. There's also a wonderful section on how to write a play and how to write musical theater and casting, which I want to get to in a minute because there's some great stories about casting in the book. What inspired you to write the book? Were you sort of thinking there isn't anything like it, so I'm going to write it? Well, exactly. There was a vacuum there. And then that sort of inspired me to write the other books as well. I mean, I, this is my personal experiences that I had trying to do my first showcase. Uh, at one point, um, in my late 20s, uh, in the 70s, theater was dying in New York. The, the economy was terrible. The theater was dying. Everyone was leaving. The, the late night host, Johnny Carson, left. Uh, actors couldn't make a living to have a, to have a show run. So everyone was leaving town. And I ended up going out to California myself, which gave me a chance to write a play, put myself in it. And inadvertently, sort of became the first show that I ever produced. Uh, so I put myself in it, I put my girlfriend in it. I had to hire a director. I had to get a theater. I had to do all things a producer does. Get a, get a do press, get a marketing ca campaign going, uh, rehearsals, where do you rehearse? Uh, and you're doing it on a shoestring. And, uh, and then the show actually got you know, decent reviews. Half an A for effort and half an E for uh, sincerity was what one of the critics had said uh, about the show. But it did give me some real training. And I actually made back 75% of my investment in that, which... Wow. I later learned that's almost almost a hit show in showbiz economics. What an incredible ed education. I was struck by the people you've worked with, uh, Stuart, the wonderful stories like your chapter on auditions and casting and Let's Put On A Show where you talk about how the casting process can lead to surprising discoveries. And you talk about when you were casting your lead for the Broadway production, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and your initial choice for the role was Kristen Chenoweth. Kristen had her sights set on Hollywood. You found another Millie, but she took sick a few days before you were opening. And Sutton Foster took over. And for those of you who don't know, Sutton Foster is a major Broadway star and also the star of my favorite television series, Younger, on Amazon Prime. Did you have a sense when you saw Sutton Foster that she was going to become a huge star? Well, when she uh, stepped into the role when we were out of town and Michael Mayer, our director, saw her, he shouted it out, that's our Millie. <laughs> and she was just a delight to work with. She's a delightful actress and, and person. Uh, and I have to tell you, the you know, with the, the accolades that she got and the recognition that she got by doing Millie, she didn't leave for Hollywood right away. She didn't go running off to do movies. She stayed with the show for the entire run. And uh, yeah, which was really quite impressive. But, I mean, she's really a Broadway baby. 
Uh, and there are a few, there are a handful. Bernadette Peters is another one. Those that just shine on stage, that's their medium. Now, as you said, Sun's been able to expand uh, into cable and TV and, and maybe even movies sometime. We'll see. Uh, but she's a terrific. She's our favorite. My daughter and I binge watch that show, but also have seen her on Broadway. So you're an actor, you're a playwright, you've directed, you've written books, and of course you've created Broadway HD. But I'm wondering, what made you decide to choose producing as your focus? Well, you know, as I, uh, as I approached my late 20s, and my, you know, I'd be working you know, one week or three weeks, and then you're out of work for another two or three months. And uh, I was reaching a point where I wanted to at least have the illusion of some control over my life. You know, I, I don't want to be an old person uh, regretful and bitter saying and blaming other people why I didn't get to where I wanted to be. So I said, at least let me go back. Uh, so I left L.A. I actually came back to New York. Uh, I, I, I spoken to uh, Jimmy Needlander, the, the Needlander organization. He got me a job working as assistant house manager at the Brooks Atkinson Theater at the time. And same time next year was playing there. Uh, that was written by Bernard Slade, a Canadian, I think. Uh, and uh, we played at Brooks Atkinson at the time. Uh, I think, in fact, Charles Grodin was the one who originated the, one of the characters in the play who just passed away. Uh, but the, uh, so I was getting to know the nuts and bolts about producing or at least running a theater. So I worked, uh, and then I worked tribute with Jack Lemmon. Uh, well, that was the next show to come in there. And then the, the theater went dark. I went over to where Annie was playing, the Alvin Theater at the time, which is now the Neil Simon. And uh, so I started working about, you know, instead of dealing with character and motivation and plot, uh, as an actor, I'm dealing with, you know, W-2 forms, the boiler, tickets, patrons, much more you know, visceral financial and, and mechanical things. Uh, but at the time, uh, you know, I, get, I mentioned Broadway was just, just a mess. It was dying. You know, if it hadn't been for a chorus line, which saved the Schubert organization, or Annie, which really gave the Needlelander organization a shot in the arm, they were the two major theater operators at the time. It was a tough time to sustain a show. I mean, even at the Palace Theater, uh, which, but with disaster, some comes opportunity, right? Uh, and so the uh, nobody wanted to own the theater. You, you know, there was a white elephant. It was expensive. You had to pay taxes. You had to maintain it. And you couldn't get a show to run at the time. Uh, but, I, but I felt it was part of New York. This is part of New York City, part of the theater community. I'm a diehard New Yorker. I love a walking town, love the theater. And it was an opportunity for me to step in. I said, I'll, I'll take my chances with this because it's a piece of Manhattan. Wow. Now, mind you, Times Square was, you know, the, the, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, the three-card Monty guys. Uh, it, it was a mess. But, you know, I was young. It, it was great. This is all part of the adventure. Uh, it turned out to be a good decision. Uh, in the long run. <laughs> it, it was a great decision for us yeah. and for you. So, Stuart, you've won six Tony Awards. And you write in your book that you can truly say your marriage to the theater and to producing have been a hit. And I, I want to ask you, what it was like to win that first Tony Award in 1984 for, am I right about that date? For, for yeah, Best yeah. Musical, for La Casual you had been told that that piece was going to be a career ender. And instead, you, see, you heard your name being called. You won a Tony Award for it. The musical was up against Sunday in the Park with George. Good Lord. And your show received nine nominations, six of which became awards. What do you remember when you rose from your seat to accept your first Tony Award win? Well, you know, the, the whole team, we, we, it was a nail-biter because we were up against a stiff competition like a Sunday in the Park with George. And you're kind of like leaning on your seat and leaning forward and you're waiting just to hear the first, the first syllables coming out of, uh, uh, Michael Bennett was reading from the card, the first syllables coming out of his mouth, will it be a la for Lacage or will it be a su? <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> That's good. And uh, when he said Lacage, well, it, it just it all came together. All of a sudden, my entire life uh, had meaning. And uh, and the celebration was that it, it, it worked. It makes you emotional to think about this, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But we won, and uh, we had a great run, five and a half years at the Palace Theater. So that was amazing. Isn't that phenomenal? Congratulations on that. So this is why I want my listeners to really hear this. By the age of 34, so just get this, 34, not 104, you earned the first of six Tony Awards. You had been a summer stock apprentice, a working actor, a produced playwright, a director, a play reader, a radio host, a drama critic, an assistant casting director, an assistant house manager at the Brooks Atkinson, 
And you're also the co-owner of Broadway's Palace Theater. And you were only 34. This is the kind of body of work that many would hope to achieve in a lifetime. And you did this in your early 30s. What do you think drove you so relentlessly? Because you did a lot by 34 and you've done a lot since and you're going to continue to do a lot, I'm sure. But what what do you think it was in those early years that propelled you? Oh, well, you know, uh, having family support as, as, as much as they were not happy with my chosen profession, they certainly wanted to see me succeed with it. I suppose, you know, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And uh, I know that the opportunities are not always going to be there. I, I remember when the phone didn't ring kind of thing. So I always try to take it, uh, make the most of any opportunities that, that are knocking at the door uh, because you just never know, especially in our industry. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I love the theater. I love working with the theater. I love commiserating with writers and regulars. I mean, I work with talented people, so much more talented than I am. I get to work with them. So it's really exciting that way. Uh, so uh, you know, that, that's one thing that motivates you in, in, in the industry. But, you know, uh, being in love with the theater doesn't mean the theater is always there to support you either. I love them all, but not all of them were hits. Of course. Uh, so sometimes the theater can, can can bite you as well. You have to have nerves. Great. You have to have nerves of steel. You've also been called Stuart Mensch, which is a person of great integrity and honor. So with all of your success, I sense that you've done it all in an integrous, honest, and ethical manner. Did you ever feel it was hard to maintain your Menschlichkeit and integrity in the world of show business, which we know has all kinds of characters and well, you know, i've had good advisors uh, one time a reporter came to me and he was doing a series of articles of, of nasty people in the business was there anyone i'd worked with that i could talk about that had been uh that had been you know nasty or mean or whatever so i called my, my larry kasdan a fellow producer and writer and uh, he said sue it's a small industry don't say anything bad about anyone anytime it was a, it'll come back to haunt you somehow i said, I said okay that's a lesson never you know and, I, and really, working in the theater, you, you appreciate you know, all the work that everybody puts into it. I mean, from the stage doorman uh, at the theater to the ticket taker to the star of the show. I mean, they're, they're all part of this process uh, in this environment, which is just fabulous. You know, there's a Canadian actress named Cynthia Dale, who's a phenomenal actor in this country at the Stratford Festival. She was actually in the film Moonstruck with Cher. Uh, She's a brilliant, brilliant talent. We just had her on the show. And she was saying her advice to my daughter, who's about to graduate next year from theater school and to all the theater grads is get a business degree. (laughs) Know the business of show business. Right. And I think you're a very acute businessman, which also helped you in, in all that you've done. Well, certainly, uh, when I made that transition from acting to being a house manager, uh, I held down an, another job, I might add. Uh, I was also a, as a junior executive to my father who was working at a corporation. So not only was I working the theater, I had eight shows a week. And the only time I worked during the day was on Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I could hold down two jobs. I mean, so on Wednesdays, instead of doing the matinee, uh, the, the house manager ran it, and I covered for him on Saturdays as a, as a favor. So I was able to get a job where I was learning finance. Also, I did the annual reports for them and, uh, and started working at a company, an electronics company out on the island as well. So I was getting a firm sense of business by the seat of my pants. In fact, I went to a teacher down at NYU to say whether I should get a degree in, in business. And he said, um, he said, well, that's what we, we train people to do here and you're doing it. <laughs> so really, there's no reason for you to come down here. <laughs> you got it already. You wrote a book, Stuart, called Jews on Broadway, which is a historical survey of performers, playwrights, composers, lyricists, and producers. And you ascertained that Jews made an indelible mark on Broadway for more than a century. And I, I couldn't get over some of the names in the book, people like Fanny Bryce and Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern, Barbara Streisand, Alan Menken, Stephen Sondheim. And your book takes readers all the way from Jewish immigrants to vaudeville to Broadway to wartime to the Catskills, to Disney, and all the way back to the new millennium. Can you just tell us briefly what inspired you to write this book, Jews on Broadway? Well, sort of, uh, you mentioned before, there was a vacuum there. I mean, the Jewish contribution to the American entertainment theater world is immense. And, you know, why? Why why have actors and and writers been drawn out of the theater community? And, uh, you know, actually, I asked in the book, I I went through uh, Toba Feltscher, you know, she thought it was a meritocracy. You know, here was a country that, that when you came over from Europe, you couldn't own land, you couldn't become certain professions, you weren't even allowed in, in certain circles. But in America, there were opportunities, less hurdles to overcome in, in the business. And so talent was recognized. This wasn't just a one-shot deal. It's not just 
one star or one writer. They're dynasties. I mean, Oscar Hammerstein, the father, was a uh, was a talent agency in 1900. It was Oscar Hammerstein the second did Oklahoma and and, and worked with Rogers and Hart. Actually, when you go through the entire people that operate the theater, you know, the, the ticket takers and the, the the box office people, generations have been working in the box office. Fathers wow. and grandfathers and grandmothers. You say, oh yeah, my dad worked the box office back when you know Bob Hope played here. You know that kind of thing. For oh, those Bob Hope. <laughs> oh, Bob Hope, <laughs> just the, the people you've met and you work with gobsmacks me. I was also enchanted, Stuart, when I saw your beautiful coffee table book, and I didn't expect it to be like a, a large, gorgeous book that you could actually keep on your coffee table. It's so beautiful, entitled Black Broadway, which is an illustrated history of African-American struggles and triumphs on stage. What a beautiful, colorful and comprehensive book with gorgeous photographs of playbill covers and posters and many of the stars on stage. I'm just going to list some of them because I I, was, I, I just loved reading this. George Walker, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, Duke Ellington, Sidney Poitier, D Diane Carroll, Harry Belafonte, Sammy Davis Jr., Morgan Freeman, Melba Moore, Debbie Allen, Ben Vereen, Vanessa Williams, Audrey McDonald, and Cicely Tyson, just to name a few. Just a remarkable book with historic photographs, gorgeous illustrations, and I can't get over the amount of research you did on this. One of the reviews said that this book is a celebration of nearly 200 years of African-American theater history in the U.S. It's also a unique tribute to all of the African-American actors, producers, and playwrights who have contributed to the fabric of the American theater. We're going to go on a short commercial break. We'll find out more about the beautiful book, Black Broadway, when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and I'm having a delightful conversation with Tony Award-winning producer Stuart Lane. So what inspired you to write the book, Black Broadway? Well, you know, as you, as you know, I, I love the theater and the way it communicates with people. And the African-American community has been like the unsung heroes of, of supporting theater. I mean, adding not only, you know, culturally different aspects, but the whole new realm of talent of writing, uh, that was under underappreciated, I felt. And uh, certainly as the civil rights movement was picking up, I mean, it was fascinating. I thought this would be like a 20th century story. This goes back to like Revolutionary War days, where they actually had the Shakespeare Company downtown in New York. So we're talking, it's covering the centuries of this young country. You know, I, I talk about uh, America. We're basically a young country compared to the rest of the world. And culturally, we didn't really come to mature in our own uh, playwriting until the 20s with Eugene O'Neill and movies uh, and musicals like Showboat, which tackled major pro you know, social problems and issues uh, and were much more relevant to what was going on. So we're relatively new. So uh, here was an opportunity to appreciate a community, uh, the African-American community, what they've, they've done. And if you go through the book, uh, I, I know, and I had a great publisher. I went to the publisher. I said, you know, I did the Jews on Broadway. And I wish it was bigger and more pictures and hardcover. So the next one, the Black Broadway, I'd like to improve on that. And he agreed with me. So he gave me this beautiful book. And uh, we actually came up with a timeline. That was his idea to come up with a timeline on the bottom. So as stars were appearing on Broadway and the shows they were doing, you could see what was happening on, on a civil rights level and social level on the bottom to give it some more context, which I thought was really exciting about the book. So incredible. And I, I just can't get over that you, you, you've done all of this incredible body work. Let's talk, speaking of that, about BroadwayHD.com, of which you are the president and the CEO. And for those of you who don't know who are just tuning in now, Broadway HD is a streaming service for viewing full-length Broadway shows. And you can actually see these shows on your laptop, on your iPad, computer, right in the privacy of your own home. How did this all evolve and come to be? Oh, well, I've, I've been producing uh, and writing shows now for 40 years. And uh, over those decades, I've seen uh, other people try and uh, use other mediums to celebrate the Broadway experience. So, you know, there was there was a broadcast TV, which did uh, one version. Uh, then there was a pay-per-view when cable came out. And then there was uh, CDs, uh, DVDs, Blu-ray. Uh, even at one point, there was in cinema. But, you know, no platform by itself was able to support a business, a real business. And uh, even during that process, there was a learning curve where my wife and I were producing shows and shooting them and saying, where can we make the money? Is there money in the DVD market? Is there money? And where, where's the life after the show closes and goes on tour? Where is that? 
And we're, we're about five and a half years old. We opened, uh, we've actually launched uh, October of 2015. But the idea was that we can make Broadway affordable and accessible geographically and economically. We can make this happen and we can share it with the rest of the world. And one thing that the, uh, the Broadway League and the Broadway community at, at large has always tried to do is create a market for younger people, invite the younger audiences. That's the future, future theater goers. But they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford to come to New York. They couldn't afford a ticket once they got here. So that gave us an opportunity to invite younger people to be part of the theater. And how were people watching, young people watching their entertainment now? They're watching it on their iPhones and their cell phones, and they're watching it on their iPads and computers. That's how they were going to watch it. So that's the future. Future was capturing this and creating the experience of Broadway in your home on your iPad. And I would think, Stuart, that during this pandemic, this has been such a boon. And this is for me, I have missed the theater so much. And when I'm really missing it desperately, I just go to the Broadway HD and watch a live show. And there's something about the live stream and the way you've done it so professionally that it feels like you're right there. Have you heard that a lot during the pandemic is thank God for your Broadway HD. I can't tell you how many producers came to me later and said, oh, I wish you'd shot my show. I wish you'd kept and preserved it. Uh, it's, it's an amazing experience because it's been exciting. We're pioneering this and we're still here. You know, uh, it's a new art form. And uh, certainly uh, there was certain uh, fears about cannibalizing ticket sales or taking away the audience numbers, but we're not. We're a marketing tool. People will see what we're doing. They come on a global scale. We're able to introduce them to Broadway shows. They want to see it for real. Absolutely. And certainly when uh, Disney did Hamilton and really established the capturing of a live performance and what that means. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. This is a live performance you're capturing. We'll use, when we shot She Loves Me, we used 14 cameras all over the theater. You don't just get the best seat in the house. You get every seat in the house, including one camera on the uh, conductor as well. So, and we'll shoot two or three performances and then maybe uh, do some uh, pickup shots, point of view shots. So you're creating a whole new art form from that. And uh, certainly new categories had to be invented for us for awards. And Hamilton helped establish that between the, uh, the Critics' Choice Awards and stuff. So there wasn't a category for us before. So now you can watch for $8.99 a month or $100 a year. You have a choice of over 350 shows that we have on Broadway HD. And we're adding new shows every month. Uh, so it's been very exciting. So incredible. It's Broadway musicals, it's plays, it's so much. There's uh, there's so much more. And one of them was Elaine Stritch at Liberty. I saw this, I don't know if it was in Toronto or, or in the West End, but I did see the show originally. And then I watched it on your incredible Broadway HD. And I think I loved it even more on Broadway HD because it was so up close and personal. And I wept and sobbed just as I had in the original piece. Because I remember when I first saw that show, I was rooted to my seat. I couldn't get up when the show was over. I had to stay seated for 10 minutes just because I was so overwhelmed. And then seeing it at home, it was the same reaction. And I couldn't believe that. No, I I got to meet Elaine Stritch. I actually met her in Canada when I flew up to see a uh, show that she was doing and she was a delightful, uh, delightful person. And uh, that, that particular show was good. We have a couple of Canadian shows on our website as well. We have several, at least 10 Stratford productions on our website and a terrific one. We just added a short time ago uh, called uh, uh, two pianos, four hands. Oh, that's so good. That's you know, fantastic. That Richard Greenblatt and Ted Dysus. Yes. And I think that originated at the at the Mervish Theater at the Royal Alexandra Theater with David Mervish. So fantastic. I remember seeing that on opening night, actually. Yeah, wow. That's that's oh. they did it for like 25 I, years. They did it for 25 years. And that's going to be on your Broadway HD now. Yes, you can see that. Yeah. So I want to talk to you for a minute about a very big question, which is where is Broadway right now? Where is it going? Well, Broadway is is always been a growing artistic environment. So it never really stays the same. I mean, I can go through the history of how you know, I fell in love with the musicals of Rodgers and Hammerstein and the movies and the golden age of musicals in the 50s with, you know, with My Fair Lady and even the early 60s. But then things started to change. Uh, the, the audiences started to change and the linear way of storytelling began to change. All of a sudden, the, the artists were experimenting with different forms. Cabaret, for instance, they used to t- they told the stories through cabaret acts. So audiences are constantly changing, and uh, and that's what's happening today. Uh, you can see that uh, certainly on many levels things were going to change anyway. We're 
trying to include, be more inclusive in the Broadway and uh, stage, trying to be more diversified on the Broadway stage to include the LGBTQ communities, the BIPOC, uh, and then and going forward, I think they're going to see some major changes in the hierarchy of the nonprofit organizations that are going to include a lot of that. A lot of this has already been in the pipeline. You know, there's going to be a lot that was already started before this, I'll say enlightenment, but this, this, uh, this conscientious change of pace. And so they're going to have the shows coming in, but going forward, uh, you know, they're already working on more women directors, more women lighting designers, more, uh, more people of color involved on stage and behind the scenes uh, as well. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not going to be easy, because, but, it's, but there's a conscious effort afoot to do that. So you'll be able to have something for, well, something for everyone. Disney kind of did that when they moved in. You know, when, when the, back in the day, you had one family show a year, uh, a decade. You had one show, you know, Oliver in the 60s, Annie in the 70s. By changing it to family entertainment, you were able to create a much larger audience, a much more diversified audience. We're kind of doing that now. Okay, so Stuart, I'm wondering, Mark, is there going to be plexiglass around seats? What is it going to physically look like in a theater for people to feel comfortable? Are you going to need to show your vaccine card? Hi, I've been double vaccinated I, you know, to get into a theater. What's it going to look like in terms of people's comfort level and safety? Uh, well, I think uh, people have been cooped up for over a year now here in the States. And so they're really pouring out and getting ready to go. Uh, and by the time the shows start opening in September, that should be even better. So there's certain protocols that are being in place and we're setting up for the customers as well. Uh, it's probably going to be a, some sort of vaccinated card of some kind, maybe even a, a section where this is where the vaccinated sit and this is where the non-vaccinated sit without violating anybody's rights. But, you know, health issues are going to prevail. I think that people are feeling more confident now, especially here in the States. And you see that with the sports events, more people are attending sports events as well. And that can be a forerunner of what to expect uh, in the theater. Already people are starting to buy tickets for the shows that are opening up in New York. So that's a really good sign. What are some of the shows opening up in New York and what are some of the shows that you're involved in? Uh, well, uh, the, the, some of the early shows are um, Hades Town is opening up early, like in September 14th. Uh, six, I have a small piece of six, uh, which will be opening up in, uh, in, I think, in September as well. October 3rd is the opening day, but they have previews before that. Uh, they're going to be bringing in Mrs. Doubtfire this year, the, the stalwart regulars of Lion King, and and uh, and um, Phantom, Wicked, Phantom, and um, yes, and Wicked. So yes, yeah, so they'll, they'll be coming in. Uh, so if you haven't seen it or you want to see it again, that's the place to go. Or you can watch some of them on Broadway HD if you can't right. make it to New York. <laughs> that's right. You're, you're all covered. Uh, you're also one of the owners, and you've been one of the owners of the Palace Theater. You acquired the other half in 1980, and you brought in Candor and Ebb's Women of the Year with Bacall, Lauren Bacall. What are your memories of working with Lauren Bacall? Well, working with Lauren Bacall was, was, you know, she's legendary. What can you say there? Uh, there were some funny stories about her taking off for the Hamptons on the weekends and sometimes taking the toilet paper from the bathroom with her so she'd be sure to have to be working all week. Uh, but she, she was actually very, very good to work with uh, on, on there. And, and she did win the Tony that year. She was, she was, she was great, great to work with on that. Uh, you know who took over? I know in New York. Maybe Elkie did it in California, but in New York, Raquel Welch. I was just going to ask you, Raquel Welch appeared during Bacall's vacation after the contract ended. What are your memories of working with Raquel Welch? You know, she, not only is she as beautiful, natural, just gorgeous woman to, to, uh, to look at, and, and, but she's a delight to work with. I mean, not only was she, was she pleasant and a consummate professional, but never missed a performance, always a team player. Now, I can't say enough nice things about working with Raquel, really. I mean, she, she knew that she was in the business and what you had to do to stay fit and, and, uh, and flexible with it. And she was just amazing. In fact, in fact, we actually did so well with her while she replaced the call. We brought her back for another nine months or so after Lauren left, after Betty left the show. That's so amazing. That's right. You've also worked with Bernadette Peters. Can you give us a few words to describe Bernadette? That must have been fabulous. Well, Bernadette, as I said earlier, she's a Broadway baby. She you know, can do anything. She sings, she dances, and you know what a sweetheart. Even when we had some some problematic shows like we were working on, but she was she was there for us always. Uh, whatever show I was working on, and she was you know, she was great. Even in shows I didn't produce, like Andy, get you done. She was really good. That's so amazing. Is there a star, Stuart, that you worked with who you were absolutely starstruck by, and you almost went, "Wow, how am I meeting this person and working with them?" I didn't get to work with him, but it was a great moment. We were opening Lacage in California, and uh, Charlton Heston was there. 
And he came up to me and I was introduced as the producers of the show. And boy, he looked, he took my hand and he looked me right in the eye and said, that was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my entire life. Congratulations. Boy, John Heston, talking to me like that. <laughs> That's so fabulous. Was there a moment, Stuart, in your career so far, I know there'll be more, that was such an epiphany because I'm sure there's been many, but just a moment that really stands out for you where you thought, I am flying. Oh, It doesn't get any better than this. Well, listen, when, when uh, Michael Bennett announced the award uh, for the Tony Award for Lacage, that was a culmination of like everything I've been doing up to that point in my life was, you know, it worked. You know, the, the, the doubts you had. You know. so, so it was really a special moment that said, yes, and, and it legitimized what I was doing. It was, it was proof. See, I can deliver. I can deliver a Tony Award-winning musical that will make money. That was the other thing. You know, you, they don't always go hand in hand, you know. So fantastic. You revive shows, Stuart, that are drool-worthy. Musical revivals of shows like Can Can, West Side Story, Sunday in the Park with George, Fiddler on the Roof, Gypsy, Annie, Follies. What was the revival for West Side Story like? <laughs> you know, we had this terrific production. We had Jerome Robbins recreating a lot of the choreography. We had Debbie Allen in the role. We had, we had Josie DeGuzman in it, because uh, it was Debbie Allen before she did the movie fame. We should have had her in after she did the movie fame, because nobody knew who Debbie Allen was when we had her in it. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a strange time, uh, transition time, because uh, the VCR was becoming very popular at this point, and people were saying, I can watch two unknown people live on stage, or I can watch Natalie Wood in West Side Story at home. And uh, that kind of, I think, took a bite out of the part of that. And that was in the early 80s. Early 80s? Yeah. I love the story in your book, putting on a show about how when you were asked to produce Minnelli on Minnelli with Liza Minnelli, and you were so excited of the thought of Liza Minnelli performing at the palace where Judy Garland, her mother, had presented one of her most iconic shows. And when Liza Minnelli invited you to her apartment, you thought it would just be to discuss the show. What happened? Well, I, I, was, I was concerned. You know, Liza had uh, been... Uh, that was recuperating from from different personal uh, hurdles that she was trying to overcome. And uh, I'd seen her at Radio City Music Hall, and uh, the performance there was, was not up to her usual high standards. So I was getting a little concerned. So she invited me up to her apartment, which, you know, I, amazing, beautiful apartment on the Upper East Side. Warhol pictures of her father all over the place. And she did, like, the entire show for me. For me, it's like a private showing with Liza and Nelly. What a treat. And I said, I'm not wor worried, me? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. We're good. Let's go. So five years ago, Stuart, you dusted off your tap shoes to appear in Stephen Sondheim's A Funny Thing Happened on the way to the forum. What was it like to be back on stage? Uh, you know, I, I loved working with a group of actors. They were all you know, terrific. This was at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor. We were doing this. And uh, uh, it, it was just exciting to... Uh, to work to, again, communicate, work with people live on stage in real time, hearing the audience laugh, got my laughs, even got a good review in the New York Times. Uh, so it was great to be on the boards once more. It really was. Again, to be part of a group, to be part of a, to tell, to tell a story. And the audiences were really terrific. You and your wife, Stuart Bonnie, created an endowment to bring seniors to New York every spring to audition in front of casting directors. I'm sure this was happening before COVID. Can you tell us more about that? What a lovely idea. Well, you know, uh, when I was at Boston University, one of the complaints I had was that when you graduated, they just like kicked you out of the nest. You know, that was it. They kind of like wiped their hands of you and, and go, you know, no guarantees. No. I said, I, I'd like to make things better. That was part of the reason I got involved with, the, with Boston University. I'm on the board of advisors there now. I'm even on the board of uh, trustees. And uh, I said, I want to give them a chance, a leg up, something that gives them a little more advantage besides just throwing them into the deep end of the swimming pool. We set up this endowment, which would allow them to come to New York and perform uh, for casting directors, uh, producers and writers, uh, commercial people, so that they have an, an entree. They're not coming in cold. So this has been a, big, a, big, a very successful uh, you know, endeavor, which we've been doing now for oh, maybe 15, 20 years. How did you get your title, Mr. Broadway? I think Bonnie came up with it. Uh, <laughs> I, th I thought I thought Mr. Coffee sounded good, so why not Mr. Roth? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's the one who arranged for it. Yeah, that's so fantastic. What's next for you, Stuart? Oh gosh, well you, because this is a new art form and we're developing it, uh, we're now looking at you know not only 
shooting other productions, but doing our own you know, made for Broadway HD shows. Uh, we're, we're adding some new ones this fall, as a matter of fact, uh, that have been shot, uh, you know, with the COVID protocols, but just, you know, exclusively for Broadway HD, mostly musicals. Uh, you know, we have some plays and some Shakespeare in there, but uh, the big winners are really the musicals. And the, we just we just added a version of the last five years. Uh, that's uh, Jason Roberts Brown. Was a, right. Oh. right just added that. Uh, so they, so we're always adding new new shows. And uh, going forward, we have uh, even even shows that are trying out. There are a couple of shows that have come to us that say, you know, we'd love to have you shoot our show and put it on Broadway before we get to New York because it's a great marketing tool. This way, people, you know, we don't have a star in it. We don't have a recognizable title. But by showing it on Broadway HD, we're selling and marketing it so they'll come see it live when we do get there. What about bringing back some of the old ones like My Fair Lady and Sound of Music and, oh. I was just involved in producing the My Fair Lady at Lincoln Center. In fact, our, road, our show was on the road and got shut down uh, with COVID. So we actually had that on the road. Uh, I, I'm also working on, on a play called the, the, the Minutes by Tracy Letts that we were supposed to open uh, like two days before we shut down. Well, you know, the day before everything shut down, uh, one of my employees had, had um, tested positive for the virus. So I was on the phone that night at 7 o'clock saying, don't come to the office tomorrow. Stay home. We'll find a way of working through this. And they were, they were terrific. Almost seamlessly, we were all able to work from home. And, and this was a busy time then because people were now signing up for Broadway HD. Uh, so it, 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 was, it was quite, quite a quite an event. But we were able to do that. And even now, uh, we're kind of like a hybrid. I, we go to the office maybe one day a week. Not quite there. And do some at home where there's light at the end of the tunnel. Things are changing and improving and there's positivity and hope and optimism. Finally, what is bliss for Stuart Lane? Oh, this is an opportunity to meet you, which is really great. Uh, and, and to help you know, explain uh, what Broadway HD is right, for the uh, Canadian audience. They're a big part of what we do. And as I said, we, we shoot a lot of shows up there and hope to do more business with them as well. So the whole you know, Canadian audience is a big factor in what we're doing. So enjoy to do that. And I, it's a pleasure to, to meet you. Thank you, Stuart. It's such a pleasure to meet you as well. I want to thank you so much for being here. Really, it's been such a thrill. And I want to thank you. And what is the best way for people to get connected to all that you do? So let's start with the books. What is the best way for people to get Let's Put on a Show, Jews on Broadway, and Black Broadway? Well, certainly we're on Amazon. So you can get them through Amazon or any bookstore uh, that you have there. Uh, BroadwayHD.com. You can sign up. Uh, the first week is uh, for free, so you can test it out, see if you like it. And I said we have over 350 shows on there now, so that's really good. And if you want to contact me, you can either do it through the Broadway HD website or I've got my own website, uh, Broadway, MrBroadway.com. Uh, and you can go to or uh, SFLane at uh, MrBroadway.com as well. That's fantastic. And what about on social media? Do you do the social media thing? Where can people find you there? I've got my Facebook. I've got my face. I've got my face. <laughs> and do you go by Stuart F. Lane or Stuart or just S-T-E-W-A-R-T-L-A-N-E? Yes. Yeah, there. Yes. Fantastic. Fantastic. I want to thank you so much for being here. It's really been a treat for us. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a great time. Great time. Thank I you. Love it. Thank you so much for all that you do. We're going to go on a short commercial break when we come back singing us out of the show this week with a Broadway classic is triple threat performer Lily Liebrach. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together.
We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, and back again on the program is Lily Liebrach. Lily Liebrach is an up-and-coming artist on the Canadian music and drama scene who is entering her fourth year at Sheridan's Bachelor of Music Theatre Performance Program. She is a singer, actor, dancer, writer, and vocal coach. Lily has sung in concert performances and starring roles on stage since she was eight years old. One of the highlights was reprising her memorable performance as Maria in The Sound of Music with the 40-piece North York Concert Orchestra. And Lily was also named a top 10 finalist in Mervish's worldwide show tune idol competition last summer. She recently won the Three Stars Connect competition in support of the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. Lily is performing this summer at the Toronto Fringe Festival, and she just completed an online performance of Seven Stories by Morris Panitch, directed by Mary Frances Moore. Lily has taken part in master classes with Broadway stars such as Kelly O'Hara, Sierra Bogis, Jen Colella, and Shalana Kennedy. Lily spends her days studying voice, music, acting, and dance, and spends her free time singing for charity events like ICRF in Toronto, Montreal, New York, and L.A. A highlight of her year was singing for the Bernard Battelle Centre Senior Home in conjunction with B'nai B'rith and the Olive Branch Theatre Company, filmed by CTV Television. Lily's favourite day of the week by far is Sundays, where she gets to sing for the most incredible community of people at Jake's Sunday Zoom Jam, which she has been doing for over a year now. Lily believes that when you sing, you pray twice, and she looks forward to sharing stories and music with audiences for years to come. Let's have a listen to Lily singing the Broadway classic, All I Ask of You, from Phantom of the Opera. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Each week, we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. And if you're an artist, author, writer, or anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at this email, fyb at findingyourbliss.com. We also encourage you to visit us at the magazine, which is findingyourbliss.com. And of course, you can follow us at the Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. In Bliss News, we are so excited to announce an awesome three-book giveaway courtesy of Broadway producer and co-founder of Broadway HD, Stuart Lane. The giveaway, valued at over $100, includes three of Stuart's books, Let's Put on a Show, Jews on Broadway, and the gorgeous coffee table book complete with stunning photographs entitled Black Broadway. To enter this contest to win all three books, all you have to do is go to at the Bliss Minute on Instagram for all the contest details. I would like to thank my guests, Stuart Lane and Lily Liebrach, for being on the show today. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center, and everyone here at Zoomer. This show has been recorded by Squadcast. For all of us here at Finding Your Bliss, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.